Washington, D.C. This is On the Ground. A new report on FBI surveillance details how nearly every major social justice movement of the past decade, including Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter, has been targeted by the FBI. By compiling all of the known incidents together, you get a much bigger picture and it becomes clear that political surveillance is systemic in the United States. And while this week's Washington drama included Republicans bum-rushing Trump's impeachment hearing, far more dramatic testimony was heard about fossil fuel giants like Exxon knowing and lying for decades about climate change. API's global science uh, communications team action plan, which involved Exxon, Chevron, Southern Mm -hmm. Company, and more, laid out the industry's denial campaign. They knew that they were going to dump unknown at that time amounts of money, but a large investment in a climate denial and doubt campaign in, in the United States around the world. These stories and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital for October 25th, 2019. I'm Esther Averam. This week, there continue to be fast-moving events in Syria where the U.S. has intervened for more than eight years in an unsuccessful attempt to unseat the elected president Bashar al-Assad. On Monday, U.S. vehicles were pelted with garbage and dirt as they rolled out of Kurdish areas of Syria and into Iraq. The troops were ordered out by Donald Trump earlier in the month after Trump and Turkish President Recep Erdogan had a phone conversation during which Trump appeared to give a green light to a Turkish invasion of Kurdish border towns in Syria. On Tuesday, Erdogan and Russian President Vladimir Putin reached a deal to pull back the Kurdish attack and establish joint patrols in the zone along the Syria-Turkish border. And on Wednesday, Trump announced that not all soldiers would be leaving and that some would stay behind to apparently facilitate the theft of Syria's oil. We've secured the oil and therefore a small number of U.S. troops will remain in the area where they have the oil. And we're going to be protecting it and we'll be deciding what we're going to do with it in the future. Trump made the remarkable announcement on the same day that 30 blue-suited Republicans crashed the room where his impeachment hearing is being held on Capitol Hill. The mob managed to delay the scheduled testimony of Pentagon official Laura Cooper, who helps oversee U.S. policy regarding Ukraine at the Defense Department. We'll have more on Syria and impeachment after headlines with author and activist Gerald Horn. A new shocking report reveals that tests of 168 baby foods found toxic heavy metals in 95% of containers tested, and that one in four baby foods contained all four metals, including arsenic, lead, cadmium, and mercury. Researchers for Healthy Babies Bright Futures said that even in trace amounts found in food, these contaminants can alter the developing brain and erode a child's IQ with each meal or snack a baby eats. Despite the risks, with few exceptions, there are no specific limits for toxic heavy metals in baby food. Though shocking, the problem is not new, and U.S. regulatory agencies have not been up to the task of ending the danger. The report says that in 2017, for example, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration charged a team of top agency scientists 
with quote-unquote reducing exposures to the greatest extent possible. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer called this week for the FDA to investigate, I guess investigate again, the toxins. Health experts recommend limiting young children's rice consumption because rice is a common source of arsenic. The study suggests swapping in rice-free snacks, which it says has 93% less toxic heavy metals. And instead of rice cereals, parents could opt for multigrain cereals or oatmeal. Instead of teething biscuits and rice husks, it recommends parents use other soothing foods like a frozen banana or chilled cucumber. Even fruit juices can contain arsenic or lead, so the group recommends parents offer children water to drink, which has 68% less toxic heavy metals. And instead of just feeding babies carrots and sweet potatoes, parents should feed babies a variety of vegetables. Catholic activists opposed to nuclear weapons known as the Kings Bay Plowshare 7 were found guilty Thursday on all four charges related to their nonviolent acts of civil disobedience at the Kings Bay Navy base in St. Mary's, Georgia last year. During the trial, federal judge Lisa Godbay Wood restricted any evidence or testimony having to do with a necessity defense, international law, or treaties restricting nuclear weaponry or religious and moral reasons. The defendants face more than 20 years in prison for destruction and depredation of government property in excess of $1,000, trespassing, and conspiracy. They await sentencing in 60 to 90 days. All but one of the protesters, Father Steve Kelly, are out on bail awaiting sentencing. And finally, in culture and media, advocates for WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange are fighting against his extradition extradition from the UK to the United States on espionage charges. This week in a UK court, he was denied an extension for his trial and appeared frail and hardly able to speak his name. And on Capitol Hill this week, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg testified in defense of Facebook's controversial plan to launch a proposed cryptocurrency Libra. Representative Maxine Waters of California Chair of the House Committee on Financial Services cited a litany of concerns about Facebook's new proposed venture. Facebook's plans to create a digital currency, Libra, and a digital wallet, Calibra, raise many concerns relating to privacy, trading risk, discrimination, opportunities for diverse-owned financial firms, national security, monetary policy, and the stability of the global financial system. I and other Democrats have called for a moratorium on Facebook's development of its digital currency, Libra, and digital wallet, Calibra, until Congress can examine the issues associated with a big tech company developing these digital products and take action. As I have examined Facebook's various problems, I've come to the conclusion that it would be beneficial for all if Facebook concentrates on addressing its many existing deficiencies and failures before proceeding any further on the Libra project. Zuckerberg also faced questions from Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York about its independent fact-checking operation, which includes the right-wing publication The Daily Caller, 
and Representative Ann Wagner of Missouri said that Facebook must work harder to shut down postings of images of child sex abuse victims on its platform. Now, centuries before social media was created, human beings were entertained by the oldest forms of music, which scholars are still discovering. Chantel James has more. Tuesday Night Politics and Prose hosted author Ted Joya for a discussion of his most recent book, Music, a Subversive History, is a chronicle of the past 4,000 years of music making that turns the conventional narrative on its head. Before opening the floor to the audience, Joya discussed his premise that music has always been made by rebels and those from groups considered marginal to the mainstream, and that the social transformations it has brought about were initiated by outsiders to the center of power. Here he explains... When you study the history of music from the point of view of common people and the average person, you found that the innovations actually started with them. And it would only be 50, 100 years later that they would show up with elites. And the classic example is we're told the most important revolution in Western song was from the troubadours. The nobility in France created these secular songs that completely changed Western music. But in fact, and this is something no one had written about before, those same kinds of songs had been sung 200 years earlier by female slaves in the Islamic world. And they entered Europe through the conquest of the Iberian Peninsula by uh, Muslims, and then crossed over the border to the south of France where the French nobles took them. And this is one example among many where I found that actual innovations were coming from unexpected places, from outsiders, from renegades from bohemians, often from slaves. And this was left out of the music history books. We all know from our own musical experiences how much of the most popular music, the most celebrated music, the most successful music comes from outsiders. I mean, Hip-hop is not created by elites. Jazz and blues was not created by elites. Country music was not created by elites. Joya also assured us that music will be found in close relationship with the uprisings and revolts occurring around the globe this year. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. Thank you, Chantal. And finally, and finally, one of D.C.'s newest grassroots organizations, Don't Mute D.C., is planning for a full week of combining art and activism. Today, as we go to broadcast on October 25th, they are rallying and participating in a D.C. council hearing at the Wilson Building on the fate of United Medical Center, the only full-service medical center in D.C. east of the river. On Wednesday, October 30th, they are soliciting those who would like to testify at a hearing for legislation to make Go-Go the official music of D.C., and on Halloween, Don't Mute DC is holding a masquerade ball on the rooftop at the Eaton Workshop Hotel in Northwest DC. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, the latest on Syria, the impeachment process, and the Africa Russia Summit. Stay with us. Flowing free and through and free. 
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And for this segment, I'm joined by our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, we're going to start with Syria. And the big news this week is that Russia brokered a plan to end Turkey's invasion of Syria. And there was a rather bold-faced statement from Donald Trump that the U.S. was leaving troops in Syria to basically seize that country's oil. And he didn't say it, but this is also a vital agricultural region where wheat and other products are produced that the country desperately needs. So what's your take on this week? It represents a collapse of U.S. policy. Recall that it was not so long ago that we were told, even by some of our friends on the left, that the aim of U.S. policy would be to get rid of the al-Assad regime in Damascus. Obviously, that particular objective has gone by the board. And in a larger context, I see this particular retreat, as well as the reluctance of the 45th U.S. president to attack Iran in light of the allegations that Iran had attacked an oil facility in Saudi Arabia, as a reflection of the fact that U.S. imperialism is husbanding its resources for a wider and larger confrontation with China. And it does not want to be, quote, distracted, unquote, by these other brush fires. What's striking to me also is that the right wing commentator in the New York Times, Brett Stevens, suggests that the Democratic Party will now become the party of neoconservatism. I guess he's referring to the fact that it was the Democratic Party in 2011 that overthrew the government of Muammar Gaddafi in Libya. The Democratic Party has been attacking Mr. Trump from the right on China. And in any case, these parties oftentimes go through reversals. Recall it was not so long ago that the Democratic Party was the party of the Ku Klux Klan and the Republican Party was the party of Abraham Lincoln. So don't be surprised that there's some sort of reversal of fortune, if you like. Now, Hmm. Turkey is obviously the wild card in this particular scenario. It has been barred effectively from the European Union and therefore is striking out towards uh, Moscow. It's been meeting with President Erdogan, has been meeting with President Putin on a regular basis. And I think that this is something also that we're going to have to watch, as well as the upcoming visit to Washington by President Erdogan of Turkey. Routinely, when he comes to the United States, he meets with African-American Muslims. It'll be interesting to see if that takes place during his upcoming visit. 
Well, on this whole issue of war, uh, these regime change wars, we can't not mention the exchange between Hillary Clinton and Tulsi Gabbard. In a podcast, Hillary Clinton went after Tulsi Gabbard and Jill Stein, accusing them of being you know, Russian agents or Russian bots, and uh, said that the, she believed that uh, Russia would be grooming uh, a candidate to be a third-party candidate as a foil in the 2020 election. And uh, Tulsi Gabbard shot back and called Clinton the queen of warmongers and basically an uh, embodiment of corruption that is uh, destroying the party. So it, it's been a big deal here in D.C. And she and Jill Stein have shot back in interviews, uh, mainly in progressive media, but I've seen some in, in the mainstream media also. Well, if I were Congresswoman Gabbard, I would consider bringing a defamation lawsuit against uh, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Hillary Rodham Clinton should put up a shut up. She should not be issuing these inflammatory charges without a scintilla of evidence. Uh, she should realize that not only is she uh, dirtying her own hands by throwing these bits of coal that Tulsi Gabbard, but she's also in some ways helping to befoul the political atmosphere make it more difficult to accomplish our main objective, which is removing the 45th U.S. president from office. Well, I suppose uh, that's a natural segue to the ongoing impeachment proceedings here in D.C. There was a a really raucous uh, situation this week where Republicans burst into these private proceedings where the impeachment hearing is happening. And one thing that I took from the whole scenario is that perhaps, you know, Republicans and the right have a point when they say that these proceedings should not be behind closed doors. I was a, a kid when the Watergate was happening, and I remember being glued to the tube that summer because it was a public hearing. You know, we heard Barbara Jordan talking about whatever Richard Nixon had done wrong. You know, even a child could understand uh, the gravity of what was happening and we could all see it unfolding in the daylight. So what what's your take on what's happening with the impeachment right now? And I know we want to go on to what's happening in Africa. Well, the Republicans established the template during the so-called Benghazi hearings when they had hours upon hours upon hours of hearings in private before they decided to go public. And the Democrats, in some ways, are just following that particular playbook. Uh, speaking of following a playbook, uh, when I saw the Republicans storm this private uh, hearing that the Democrats were having on Capitol Hill, my mind went back to November, December 2000 in South Florida, when a gang of Republican Party thugs uh, stormed the office where ballots were being counted in the Bush versus Gore presidential race. Right. And I dare say that that may have helped to tip the balance towards Mr. Bush. In any case, uh, this was quite extraordinary, this kind of thuggish tactic that these men, there were almost all men used, almost all white men, too, I should say, in dark suits. It was quite showing in, in retrospect. But in any case, with regard to impeachment, I find really rather striking that according to a recent poll, 99% of white evangelicals are backing Donald J. Trump in terms of this impeachment episode. And that's within the margin of error. So it's possible that 
of white evangelicals are backing Donald J. Trump for this uh, particular uh, challenge to his presidency. And uh, I think that that's a very dangerous turn of events, uh, perhaps uh, even more dangerous than this storming of the hearing on Capitol Hill. It does not bode well. And it also points, I'm afraid, to the fact that some of our liberal friends, I'm not sure, have an understanding of U.S. politics, which puts some of the historic victims of white supremacy and imperialism in North America in particular jeopardy, particularly to the extent that they're listening to these liberals who obviously have lost control of the plot and really don't know what they're doing. Yeah, I'm not sure if you mean what I'm kind of thinking, but I think it's a reasonable response to say that many on the left are questioning the the strength of these types of charges and these types of accusations against Trump when there were so many other more serious things that he's done, you know, starting with the emoluments clause, the fact that he's obviously earning money from office. He's obviously endangered children, separated from them, from their parents. You know, children have died in the custody of his administration. So none of these things were good enough or serious enough for them to go after what is many consider a rogue presidency. But this incident involving the Ukraine, when he's using very thuggish tactics with a another world leader to perhaps uh, for political gain is something that is routine in American foreign policy. I mean, right now, you know, he, we've strong armed how many countries into boycotting or not doing business with Venezuela, lest we ruin their economy. So there, there are many of us who say, you know, are you going to hang your hat, your whole hat on this one issue when, you know, there are people been dying for the past three years. Well, it's not only that, but once again, it's the fact that the Democrats are aligned with a national security establishment to bring this impeachment charge, which augurs not very well with regard to the Democrats morphing, or I should say accentuating their role as being a hawkish political party. It's apparent that the Democratic Party leadership on Capitol Hill was throwing in their lot with the national security establishment. The CIA whistleblower, the fact that uh, the national security hawks are upset with the failure to bomb Iran, the sacking of John Bolton, and uh, I shrink before no person in terms of being enthusiastic about getting rid of Trump. But to get rid of Trump on this basis does not necessarily bode well. Right. So before we signed off, we wanted to talk about the Africa-Russia summit that's happening right now. And there's like some news coming out of it. Well, the news coming out of it is apparently on the sidelines of these talks in Sochi, Russia on the Black Sea that there has been an apparent step towards an agreement between Ethiopia and Egypt over this dam that Ethiopia has been building, that Egypt charges is threatening their lifeblood, that is to say the Nile River. Hopefully this news report will prove to be accurate, but in any case, this is taking place in the context of a wider Africa-Russia summit And what's striking is that Moscow is seeking to take advantage 
of the goodwill that is part of the legacy of the former Soviet Union on the African continent, particularly in Southern Africa, because it's fair to say that the overthrow of apartheid and colonialism in that part of Africa would have been made more difficult, but for the assistance of Moscow, not only in terms of providing arms, but also, interestingly enough, in terms of providing uh, hospitalization, not least in Sochi. I'm sure that some of the delegates to this conference in Sochi probably have been there before. And, of course, the Soviet Union backed Cuba when it administered a whipping against the apartheid army in the mid-1970s after the apartheid army of South Africa had invaded Angola and was threatening Angolan sovereignty. But it's not only that. Even if you go back before 1917 in the Russian Revolution, there had been relatively close ties between the Christian church in Russia, the Christian church in Ethiopia. In any case, this Russian-Africa summit uh, follows on the heels of a Chinese-African summit that took place some months ago. And it's apparent that the African nations are looking for a counterweight against the imperialism of the North Atlantic countries. It's not surprising that one of the first persons to land in Sochi was the president of Zimbabwe, Emerson Mnangagwa, who has been under sanctions. That is to say, he, his party, ZANU-PF, and his country, Zimbabwe, not least because of their aggressive efforts to take back the land stolen by European invaders decades ago. So it seems to me that this summit between Russia and Africa uh, needs to be monitored very carefully, and certainly it seems to be a step forward away from imperialism. Okay, well, we'll leave it there for this week. I want to thank our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, for joining us today. Thank you. But
This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And as Republican members of Congress bum-rushed the closed Trump impeachment investigation on Wednesday, the first ever congressional hearing was happening at the same time, focused solely on the massive climate deception of Exxon and other oil companies who knew decades ago about the catastrophic impact that burning fossil fuels would cause, but lied about or buried their findings. I want to welcome our uh, first panel of witnesses. We have Dr. Ed Garvey, a former scientist with Exxon Corporation, uh, Dr. Martin Hofert, a former consultant to Exxon and professor emeritus of physics at New York University. We're going to start with Dr. Hofert. I, too, mourn the passing of committee chairman Elijah Cummings who was a giant in the quest for bringing the American dream to all, all of us. I want to thank Jamie Raskin, chair of the House Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, ranking member Chip Roy, who we just heard, and all subcommittee members for giving me this opportunity to testify about my personal experience as consultant on the carbon cycle and climate at Exxon Research and Engineering, uh, the issue that is of major importance here. I was recruited to work at uh, Exxon Research as a consultant by my colleague Andrew Caligari, who headed a group on uh, climate modeling and the carbon cycle at Exxon, and this was in 1981. I made it clear that for the Exxon Lab science to be credible and for me to participate, the work needed to be published in reputable science journals that were subject to peer review. This was welcomed, and though I remained a paid consultant only until 1987, I continued to publish science work with Exxon colleagues thereafter. Our group published eight peer-reviewed papers, three as a paid consultant, and five thereafter. The work focused on understanding the carbon cycle and on the climatic effects of CO2 emissions. And to bring Exxon colleagues Brian Flannery and Haroon Kashki up to speed, on the latest research, the tutorials, and eventually published papers. These Exxon scientists were excellent researchers and were soon authoring papers themselves. I'm gratified that we did important work that is still cited today. And if I may say so, the quality of the scientific work at Exxon was high, and these were published in peer review journals and incorporated into the knowledge base of how the Earth was, was evolving under the influence of fossil fuel emissions. But it would be a distraction to go into great technical detail at this point on our findings. Suffice it to say that our research was consistent with findings of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change List. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Hofer. Dr. Garvey. Good morning. Uh, let me st start also by saying that I want to express my sympathy to the panel, the loss of the chair. He was a great man and will be missed. Thank you for the opportunity to speak before the committee. I am here to testify that Exxon considered rising CO2 levels and the potential for CO2-driven climate change to be of sufficient concern 
to commit to a significant research effort in 1978. I personally participated in the data collection for this research effort, and I had firsthand knowledge of my management's objectives in collecting these data. I'd like to briefly describe to you some of the pertinent events and the managerial philosophy, uh, philosophy uh, that was in place during my five-year tenure at Exxon Research and Engineering Company. I was hired in 1978 to assist a, se a senior scientist at Exxon, Dr. Henry Shaw, in the development of a greenhouse gas uh, research project. Exxon scientists such as Dr. Black and Dr. Shaw had raised this as an issue to the corporation. I was told by Dr. Shaw that Exxon undertook this research to earn, its earn itself a place at the table among scientists, policymakers, etc., regarding climate change and the potential responses to it. The research was intended to make an important contribution to the understanding of CO2 and climate science. The program was also intended to constitute a uniquely Exxon contribution to the science. In developing the program, we worked closely with Drs. Wallace Broker and Tara Takahashi, geochemists with Columbia University. My managers at Exxon felt that a joint investigation with well-respected researchers such as these scientists would lend credibility to the effort. By working with leading scientists from academia and by contributing highly useful research, Exxon felt its opinions would be taken seriously regarding greenhouse gases and possible solutions to the problem. We ultimately selected Exxon International's 500,000-ton supertanker, the ESO Atlantic, to set up a dedicated monitoring system. The monitoring equipment would obtain measurements of CO2 in surface water and in air as the ship traversed its normal routes. The program's goal was to understand the role of the ocean in the global carbon cycle and its role in storage of anthropogenic CO2. Exxon expended a very significant effort to design and support the equipment in the relatively harsh environment on board the tanker, over $900,000 per year at the program's peak. Exxon also planned to make known its commitment to the greenhouse gas studies. The videotapes of me on the ship that are now on the Internet were made by professional photographers in 1979 with the intention of presenting the program to shareholders. The tanker project required the cooperation of multiple divisions within Exxon, the Exxon Research and Engineering Company, which employed Dr. Shaw and myself, Exxon International, and Exxon USA. It was my understanding that the Exxon Corporate Board was aware of the project, given its magnitude, approved its implementation, and was kept apprised of its progress. Around 1980 or so, unrelated to the tanker project, Exxon expanded its research efforts into climate modeling. They hired several scientists from academia, including Dr. Brian Flannery, as well as Dr. Hoffert, to conduct this line of research. About two years later, the oil market experienced a significant downturn. Exxon began to lay off staff across the corporation and also ended the tanker project abruptly. To that point, we had, we had published only one journal article on our work. I have included a copy of the article with my written statement. With the end of the project, I opted to leave Exxon in 1983 and continue my graduate studies at Columbia. Although I was very disappointed when Exxon discontinued the study, I am still grateful for the opportunity I was afforded. In summary, the importance of my testimony is to note that Exxon knew of the anthropogenic climate change issues, issue in the 1970s and considered it a sufficiently important problem to the company and perhaps to society that it undertook a major research effort. While the research at Exxon did not continue long enough to fully interpret the results, the data we collected eventually became part of the scientific work published by Columbia scientists. Although the corporation chose to discontinue this research, it continued to fund climate modeling research for at least several years 
after it terminated the tanker project. For the work that I was involved in, Exxon efforts were intended to reduce the uncertainties associated with climate change forecasts and CO2 cycling. In both instances, the corporation was aware of the potential problem caused by rising CO2 levels. Later in the hearing, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez of New York asked Mr. Halford about the data that Exxon collected during his tenure there. The orange line shows the actual level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere through this year. Mm-hmm. And the blue line shows the actual average temperature change. So in 1982, Exxon accurately, 1982, seven years before I was even born, Exxon accurately predicted that by this year, 2019, the Earth would hit a carbon dioxide concentration of 415 parts per million and a temperature increase of one degree Celsius. Dr. Hoffert, is that correct? We were excellent scientists. (laughs) Yes, you were. Yes, you were. So they knew. Mm -hmm. They knew, and I, I... presume they knew what some of the consequences of that one degree Celsius change would be. Some of them, not all. Absolutely. I would like to have an opportunity to discuss that if someone asks me. Uh, Dr. Hoffert, you have Mm -hmm. previously said that Mm -hmm. Exxon's historic denial was immoral and greatly set back efforts to address climate change. That's correct. Yes? It is correct that I said that. I have good reason to say it. And in 1998, API's Global Science uh, Communications Team Action Plan, which involved Exxon, Chevron, Southern Mm -hmm. Company, and more, laid out the industry's denial campaign. They knew that they were going to dump unknown at that time amounts of money, but a large investment in a climate denial and doubt campaign in in the United States around the world, correct? Uh, That's my, that's my, to the best of my knowledge, that's true. And every drop counts You can laugh and take it as a joke if you wanna But it don't rain a full week some summers And it's about to get real wild in the half You be buying every yard to take a bath Heads is acting wild, sipping room, pumping dank Competing with the next man for higher playing rank So I ain't got time, try to be big Hank the bank, I need a 20-year water tank Cause while these knuckleheads is out here sweating their guts The sun is sitting in the treetops, burning the woods And as the flame from the blaze get higher and higher They say, you don't drink the water, we need it for the fire New York is drinking that new world And all of California is drinking that new world All your north and down south is drinking that new world Used to have minerals and zinc in that new world Now they say it got lead and stinking that new world Chlorocarbons and monoxide Push the water table lopsided. Used to be free, now of course you will feed. Cause all tanks fill their load as they roll across the sea. Man, you gotta cook with it, baby, clean with it. That's right. When it's hot, summertime, you fiend for that it. No. You gotta put it in the iron you steaming That's with. That's right. So what they dress wounds and treat diseases Shout with. It out. The rich and poor, black and white, got need for that. That's it. right. And everybody in the world can agree with Let this. Know. Consumption promotes health and easiness. Go right. too long without it on this earth and you leaving Shout it. it out. Americans wasting it on some leisure shit. Another nation be desperately seeking that bacterial washing up on their beaches. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. Well, there's a new report titled Still Spying on Dissent, The Enduring Problem of FBI First Amendment Abuse, published by a very important organization here in D.C., Defending Rights and Dissent. The report details how nearly every major social justice movement of the past decade, including Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, Standing Rock, 
Protesters, environmental activists, and supporters of Palestinian rights have been targeted by the FBI. My next guest, Chip Gibbons, is the author of the report. Chip is the Policy and Legislative Counsel for Defending Rights and Dissent. He has advised both state and federal lawmakers and has been interviewed by news organizations on the First Amendment. He is also a journalist and researcher whose writings on the FBI have appeared in Jacobin, The Nation, In These Times, and The Washington Post. Welcome back to On the Ground, Chip. Thank you for having me again. It's always a pleasure to do radio programs like yours with the corporate media. It's very important that we have, you know, actual voices to get the truth out. Well, thank you. Our audience is probably more familiar than most with FBI surveillance and abuse. So let's first get to the news in your report, how the FBI is still surveilling activists and posing the societal danger in the last decade. Sure. So what we did was we looked at all of the instances of FBI monitoring of political expression that were available in the public domain. These are things that have come to light through FOIA requests, through activists reporting them, through journalists finding them out. We don't have any secrets, but, you know, just looking at all of those cases and why we did that was because we wanted to make it clear that these weren't isolated incidences. When they are reported in the media, if they're reported at all, they're sort of treated as like a one-off thing. But by compiling all of the known incidents together, you get a much bigger picture and it becomes clear that political surveillance is systemic in the United States. And a couple of other pictures emerge. First, that in the last decade, the FBI has continuously used its counterterrorism authorities to spy on political protest, civil society, and social movements. And second, that it singled out usually groups that were peace groups, racial justice groups, environmental groups, and economic justice groups. And if you're familiar with the history of FBI surveillance, that's what they've been doing for for, forever, basically. So that's the big thing that the report, I think, shows. So anyone hearing that list of groups that you just mentioned will say, wow, those groups are all on the left. These are people, like you said, dealing with social justice issues. And I don't I don't hear in that grouping any groups on the right, such as groups that are, are, are fighting against women's reproductive rights. You know, when the FBI does these days mention abortion, they, they talk about both sides. I'm, I'm not making this up. When they talk about extremists, they talk about extremists and terrorists on both sides of the abortion debate. That's the language that the FBI has used, including in a um, computer program they made for school children to teach them about uh, extremism. So it, it is, it, even when they start to touch those groups, they do this really weird both sidedism because we know that, you know, there haven't been supporters of a woman's right to choose that have gone out and committed acts of violence. It's the people who, who want to stop women from exercising those rights. So, yes, the FBI is definitely, definitely biased against the left. And when they do touch groups like the anti-abortion groups, they do this weird both sidesism that anybody who has lived in the United States for more than six minutes, like, what are you talking about? So the last report was in 2010, and that report was by the Department of Justice Office of Inspector General, and that was a review of the Bureau's counterterrorism investigations 
into six domestic advocacy groups. So remind us about that report. There was a bunch of controversies about 2005, 2006, when it came out through FOIA again that the FBI was spying on a number of groups. So Congress asked in 2006 the Inspector General to do a review of this surveillance. They picked a couple of groups that had been spied on the study, Catholic Workers, Greenpeace, PETA, and then they released the report on September 20th, 2010. On September 24th, 2010, the FBI was raiding the homes of anti-war and pro-Palestinian solidarity activists. Okay, so in other words, the FBI didn't skip a beat. No, they did not, no. The FBI never skips a beat when it comes to political policing. Right, so... I just want to kind of go back and remind people about some of the details revealed in that report in 2010. My memory is that it really put a lot of these organizations under the umbrella of domestic terrorism so that environmental activism was related to terrorism. And it reminded me that this is where the ideological bias comes into play, because if as an FBI agent, you believe that democracy or the, the, the project of democracy here, the goal of democracy here is connected to capitalism, is connected to the so-called free market, is connected to unfettered capitalism and, you know, corporate rights and the rights of, of the police uh, to move in an unfettered way or the rights of the military industrial complex to move in an unfettered way, then you may actually feel that activism that is countering these things is uh, is a threat domestically. So that's where the ideology comes into play. Yeah, and those corporations know uh, who the FBI works for. One of the things we mentioned in the report, this came out when Walmart was being taken before the National Labor Relations Board for union-busting and unfair labor practices. It turned out when they heard that Occupy activists were coming to protest in favor of Walmart workers who want to unionize, Walmart contacted the FBI Joint Task Force because that was their first reaction to hearing that that Occupy activists were coming. Um, And in the 2010 report, it was definitely critical of the FBI, but what it really showed was that the FBI's internal guidelines were so broad that it enabled a lot of these sort of ridiculous investigations. For example, there was a a counterterrorism investigation into an anti-war group, and the FBI's justification was that, you know, someone had damaged a window or poured blood on a military recruiting statement, and, you know, under their own guidelines, you know, that was a quote-unquote use of force or violence. Um, to achieve a political cause, so that warranted a terrorism investigation. And what's really important to remember is that since that time period, the guidelines have only gotten looser. The FBI does not have guidelines imposed on it by Congress. The Attorney General comes up with the guidelines for the FBI that determine when they can investigate someone under what circumstances, you know, can they do racial profiling, can they take into account speech, And those guidelines have consistently gotten looser with right-wing attorney generals. So the Reagan administration loosened them. The Bush administration loosened them. And the current guidelines in place came during the lame duck period of the George Bush administration, and they allowed the FBI for the first time ever to investigate someone absent facts 
indicating that person was, was likely to commit a crime or had committed a crime or posed a threat to national security. So since that OIG report, the standards for the FBI opening investigations have just gotten lower and lower and lower. And one of the things we advocate for as a solution is for Congress to step in and finally do what they should have done a long time ago and impose a statutory charter on the FBI. And that charter has to say, you can't investigate First Amendment protected activity unless you believe the subject matter of the investigation is engaging in a crime or is likely to engage in a crime. You need to be able to cite to where in the federal penal code the statute that's being broken is, and you need to actually weigh the magnitude of the offense versus the harm the investigation will do to civil liberties. So really what you're describing, and not only describing what is happening, is uh, very frightening and very dangerous because it's almost like a thought police situation. Absolutely. Yeah, if you can be arrested, detained, for your ideas and what you are advocating and there's no proof that what you're advocating is in any way violent or dangerous it's just in the whatever right wing (laughs) broad dictates that the fbi is operating under that's truly dangerous well i know we're running out of time but i really want to get your reaction to this almost turnabout in how the corporate media and politicians, lawmakers view the FBI and these so-called intelligence organizations under the Trump administration. So I'm sure you're not alone in observing how in mainstream media like you know MSNBC, so the so-called liberal media, that you have you know former heads of the FBI or the CIA actually coming on as commentators because they are you know, advocating some some type of policy or some type of narrative that's in opposition to Trump. And these people are very much welcomed, even though the left, the real left has, has been targeted by these same agencies in the past, as you've mentioned and outlined and, and detailed. And now that Trump is running afoul often of the, these same intelligence agencies, some people call them the deep state that, lawmakers on the right and the right wing media is <clears throat> questioning, you know, these, you know, police powers now and whether, you know, whether we're, are we living in a police state and they want to question the, these same agencies that they have long advocated because these same agencies were targeting the left. Yeah. I mean, I think it's unfortunate that the FBI and the CIA and all of these other agencies that have violated our rights and, you know, committed crimes in other countries, if we're talking about the CAA, are now being valorized as heroes. It's worth pointing out that the FBI has a tremendous amount in common with Trump. The FBI put out what's called the Black Identity Extremism Assessment, which argued that if African Americans are upset about injustice, like actual injustice, police racism and violence, then they may be likely to engage in quote-unquote retaliatory lethal violence against police. The former head of the FBI, James Comey, was running around talking about this completely debunked thing called the Ferguson Effect, which is the argument that because people were protesting against police brutality, there was an uptick in crime. Totally false, no such uptick. 
And then you look at, you know, a Donald Trump or a Jeff Sessions. These are the types of things they're saying. There's an uptick in crime. People are being too mean to the police. The FBI engages in suspicionless surveillance of the Muslim community. They send informants into mosques. Those informants ask, act as agents provocateurs. They ask people to participate in fake terror plots when they agree to do so, oftentimes after being offered money or cars or things like that. And we're talking about, in many cases, poor or, or desperate people. You know, like the Newburgh Five. And, yeah, the, the Newburgh, Newburgh Five, Five yes. and, mm-hmm. and, you know, wow. when Trump issued his second Muslim ban executive order, he cited two terror plots involving refugees. Both of those so-called terror plots were acts of FBI agents provocateurs. So, and, and Trump has called for surveillance of mosques, but the FBI in some ways is already doing that. So the idea that an organization that shares Trump's hostility towards dissent, shares Trump's racism, shares Trump's desire to treat American Muslims as a fifth column is, is somehow Trump's foil or is somehow going to protect us from Trump, you know, we should go out and celebrate them is absolutely preposterous. Well, people having a right to the First Amendment, uh, free speech, freedom of religion, freedom to assemble and to express grievances, that this is the bedrock of what we want to consider to be a free society. So if they want to um, laud other people's ability to march in Hong Kong or do this and do that, but at the same time, you know, surveil and discourage people and basically not only discourage people, but target people for doing the same here, then it's, it's not only, uh, not only a hypocrisy, but a real danger to people who are simply standing up for their rights. So what would you like to see lawmakers do in reaction to this report and tell us how people can find the report? I think first and foremost, lawmakers need to demand answers. They have oversight uh, powers and they should use them. You know, we only have information that's in the public domain. The FBI is very good at obfuscating and hiding things. Lawmakers can have hearings. They can do investigations. They can ask the FBI questions on the records. They can subpoena them. And they should ask, you know, why are they investigating these groups? How did these investigations get started? What other groups are they investigating? And then beyond that, the next step is, like, actually taking measures to reform the FBI And I would start with a statutory charter that lays out what the FBI's powers are and puts limits on their ability to investigate things that are not actually crimes and put limits on when they look at things that involve First Amendment protected speech. Well, I'll have to leave it there. I've been speaking to Chip Gibbons, author of the new report, Still Spying on Dissent, The Enduring Problem of FBI First Amendment Abuse, published by Defending Rights and Dissent. Thank you, Chip, for joining me. Thank you for having me. And again, you can find that report at defendingrightsanddissent.org. And that will do it for today's show. This is On the Ground, the onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or Twitter under On The Ground Show. And we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On The Ground. 
The music we played this hour included Stevie Wonder Free, Bob Marley Zimbabwe, Yasin Bey, formerly Mostef, New World Water. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.